And good afternoon. You're listening to Ken Hudnall. This is the Ken Hudnall Show. Coming to you from our studios right here in exciting El Paso, Texas. Get ready to the Old West in the most haunted city in the country. Well, today is September the 25th. This month and this year is shooting by. It's the 268th day of the year. Only 97 days remain till the year's over with. Holidays and observances. National Daughters Day. If you don't have one, run out and get one. National Lobster Day. Yom Kippur, otherwise known as the Day of Atonement. Considered the holiest day in Judaism. Binge Day. German Butter Rot Day. I'm sorry, Butter Brot Day. International Ataxia Awareness Day. Mass Storytelling Day. National Comic Book Day. National Cooking Day. National Food Service Employee Day. National John Day. National One Hit Wonder Day. National Psychotherapy Day. National Quesadilla Day. National Roadkill Day. National Tune-Up Day, National Wade Day, National Yoga Fit Day. You know, these people that can touch the top of the head with their foot really annoy me no end. Research Administrator Day, World Dream Day, and World Pharmacist Day. that covered let's go back to what happened on this date uh, in 275 for the last time the Roman Senate chooses an emperor 75 year old Marcus Claudius Tacitus which shows what happens when you got somebody too old to know what he's doing running the show 762, led by Muhammad al-Nafsul the Sunnite branch of the Alids, begins the Alid revolt against the Abbasid Caliphate. 1066, Battle of Stamford Bridge, Harold Hadrada, the invaded king of Norway, is defeated by King Harold II of England. 1237, England and Scotland signed the Treaty of York. That established the location of their common border. 1396, Ottoman Emperor Bayezid I defeats a Christian army at the Battle of Nicopolis. 1513, Spanish explorer Vasco Nunez de Balboa reaches what would become known as the Pacific Ocean. 1555, the Peace of Augsburg is signed by Emperor Charles V and the Princes of the Smalcaldic League. 1690, public occurrences, both foreign and domestic. The first newspaper to appear in the Americas is published for the first and only time on this date. 1768, Unification of Nepal. 1775, American Revolution. Ethan Allen surrenders to British forces after attempting to capture Montreal during the Battle of Long Pointe. 1775, American Revolution. Benedict Arnold's expedition to Quebec sets off. 
1789, U.S. Congress passes 12 constitutional amendments. The 10 are known as the Bill of Rights, the Unratified Congressional Apportionment Amendment, and the Congressional Compensation Amendment um, are the other two. They wanted to get paid, don't you know? 1790, four great Anhui tropes introduce uh, Anhui Opera in Beijing to honor the Quanlong Emperor's 80th birthday. 1804, the Teton Sioux, a division of the Lakota Sioux, demand one of the boats in the Lewis and Carter expedition as a toll for allowing the expedition to move further upriver. 1868, the Imperial Russian steam frigate Alexander Novsky shipwrecked off Jutland while carrying Grand Duke Alexei and Alexandrovich of Russia. 1890, U.S. Congress establishes the Sequoia National Park. 1906, Leonardo Torres-Quevado demonstrates the Pelicino in the Bilbao Ambra, Spain, guiding an electric boat from the shore with people on board, which was controlled at a distance of over 1.2 miles in what's considered to be the origin of the modern wireless remote control operation principles. In 1906, they did this. 1911, explosion of badly degraded propellant charges on board the uh, French battleship Liberia detonates the forward ammunition magazine and destroys the ship. 1912, Columbia University Graduate School of Journalism was founded in New York City. 1915, World War I, the Second Battle of Champagne begins. 1918, World War I, end of the Battle of Megiddo, the climax of the British Army, Sinai, and Palestine campaign under General Edmund Allenby. The uh, 1926 International Convention to Suppress the Slave Trade and Slavery is first signed. Of course, it's still going on. 1937, the Second Sino-Japanese War. Um, the Chinese Eighth Route Army gains a minor but morale-boosting victory in the Battle of Pingxingguan. 1944, World War II. Surviving elements of the British First Airborne Division withdraw from Arnheim to uh, via Osterbeck. Uh, the uh, Arnheim action is what became known as the Bridge Too Far. 1955, the Royal Jordanian Air Force is founded. 1956, TIT-1, the first submarine transatlantic telephone cable system, is inaugurated. 1957, Central High School in Little Rock, Arkansas, is integrated by the, through the use of U.S. Army troops. 1957, <coughs> didn't take the government class that's supposedly of the people, by the people, and for the people. It became, you'll do as we say, or else. <coughs> and before you think I'm racist, I gave up a career fighting for the rights of blacks. I told a senior judge blacks had the right to legal representation, and he told me I was a traitor to my race. 1959, Solomon Bandaranaike, Prime Minister of Sri Lanka, is morally wounded by a Buddhist monk. Tell do we 
Samarama and dies the next day. 1962, the People's Democratic Republic of Algeria is formally proclaimed. Farhad Abbas is elected president of provisional government. 1962, the North Yemen Civil War begins when Abdullah al-Salal dethrones a newly crowned imam of al-Badir and declares Yemen a republic under his presidency. 1963, Lord Denning releases the UK government's official report on a Profumo affair. Now, for those that are not familiar with the Profumo affair, it was a major scandal in the 20th century British politics. John Profumo, the Secretary of State for War and Harold Macmillan's conservative government, had an extramarital affair with a 19-year-old model named Christine Keeler. Began in 61, Profumo denied the affair in a statement to the House of Commons in 63, but weeks later, police investigation proved he lied. The scandal damaged the credibility of Macmillan's government, and Macmillan resigned as Prime Minister in October of 63. Fallout contributed to the conservative government's defeat by the Labor Party in the 64 general election. In 1964, the Mozambican War of Independence against Portugal begins. In 1969, a charter establishing the Organization of Islamic Cooperation is signed. In 1974, Dr. Frank Joby, or Job, performs the first ulnar collateral ligament replacement surgery. That's better known as the Tommy John surgery on a baseball player, Tommy John. In 1977, about 4,200 people take part in the first running of the Chicago Marathon. 1978, PSA Flight 182, a Boeing 727, collides in midair with a Cessna 172 and crashes in San Diego. Killed all 135 on board the flight, both occupants of the Cessna and seven people on the ground. And as I've said many times before, if you have a plane phone, you're having a really bad day. 1981, Belize joins the United Nations. 1983, 38 IRA prisoners armed with six handguns hijacked a prison meals lorry and smashed their way out of the maze prison. 1987, Fijian Governor General Panaya Ganalau is overthrown in a coup d'etat led by Lieutenant Colonel Savini Labuka. 1992, NASA launches the Mars Observer. Eleven months later, the probe would fail while preparing for an orbital insertion. 1998, Poconair Flight 4101, a British Aerospace 146, crashes near Melilla Airport in Melilla, Spain, killing 38 people. 2003, an 8.3 Hokkaido earthquake strikes just offshore of Hokkaido, Japan. And in 2018, Bill Cosby sent us to 3-10 to 10 years in prison for aggravated sexual assault. The uh, That was orchestrated in large part by the Me Too movement, because it was sometime in the past when this allegedly happened. Uh, statute of limitations apparently doesn't count when you're a public figure. All right. I haven't covered a little history segment. You know, there are murders that defy detection. We're going to talk about some of the most infamous unsolved murders in the last hundred years. We're going to talk about the evidence, the suspects, police investigation. 
some of the investigations that I've looked at, my grandmother could do a better job, and she's dead. Let's go to Benicia, California. Teenage couple on their first date parked at Herm Lake Herman Road, a secluded lover's lane. And as they were getting down to business, so to speak, they were startled by a beam of light. They squinted and saw a man with a flashlight. Initial thought was he was a police officer. I mean, they were nervous. I mean, who wouldn't be? Yeah, but their main fear was their parents to find out what they were up to. But they got a rude awakening when the flashlight-wielding man pulled out a handgun. Then second, 17-year-old David Faraday was shot in the head. 16-year-old Betty Lou Jensen tried to run and got only a little way before collapsing to the ground. She'd been shot in the back five times. Now, as horrific as the scene was to the sheriff's deputies that were called on to investigate it December 20th, 1968, they were ignorant of its significance. They assumed the killer was a jealous suitor of Betty Lou's. It'd be seven months before they learned that the this double shooting marked the first murders that will be claimed by a criminal known as the Zodiac. You know, most murders avoid direct contact with the police. But the Zodiac killer was different, similar to Jack the Ripper. He chose to deliberately taunt him. He sent three letters to California newspapers, the San Francisco Chronicle, the San Francisco Examiner, and the, the Valley Times Herald. And he claimed in those letters responsibility not just for the Venetian shooting, but also for another one. Now, Darlene Farron was a 22-year-old wife and mother who worked as a waitress at Terry's Waffle Shop in Vallejo, California. July 5th, 1969, she picked up, she'd been, uh, one more time, she picked up her friend, 19-year-old Michael Megu, and parked in a secluded spot at Blue Rock Springs Park. Apparently she wasn't a happy wife. As they sat there, getting down to business, a stranger approached with a flashlight, stuck a semi-automatic pistol through the open driver's side window, started shooting. Farron was killed, but despite being shot in the jaw, hip, leg, and shoulder, Mago uh, survived. Though his physical recovery would take several months. Recalling the attack, he told police that when he cried out in pain, the killer came back to fire two more shots at him and his companion before leaving them both for dead. In his letters, the Zodiac killer not only claimed credit for the murders, he also revealed specific details only the shooting the investigating officers could possibly know. For example, they started uh, they stated that David is lying on his back with his feet facing toward the car. Betty Lou was lying on her right side and Darlene was wearing patterned trousers. The letters also correctly identified Super X as a brand of ammunition used in the Benicia killing and Western is ammunition employed in the Vallejo murder. And split among the three letters was a cipher that the writer claimed would identify him. 
He demanded a newspaper run to cipher in full, and if they didn't, he said he'd go on a killing spree. Well, within days, the newspaper complied. I mean, certainly it helped sales. The code was a mishmash of English and Greek letters, well, the symbols from astrology, the Egyptian Book of the Dead, Asian mythology, and from Native American rock carvings, making it even harder to decipher with myriad misspellings and grammatical errors. Nevertheless, within a week, a high school teacher named Donald Hardin had cracked the code working with his wife. According to what he decoded, I don't like killing people because it uh, it isn't more fun than killing wild game in the forest because man is the most dangerous animal. Of all, to kill something gives me the most thrilling experience. Best part of it, uh, when I die, I'll be reborn in paradise and all those I've killed will become my slaves. I won't give you my name because you'll Hmm. Looks like try to uh, slow down or stop my collecting of slaves from my afterlife. Uh, and there's a word that really doesn't make any sense. Last 18 letters are still a mystery. Some believe the letters are a coded anagram with the murderer's name. You know, if the killer wanted infamy, his, his cipher gave net in full. Psychiatrists took the TV and newspapers to Offer their analyses, and which included terms and phrases like omnipotence and delusions of grandeur. One unnamed psychiatrist told the L.A. Times a killer was most likely an isolated individual. And the letters and ciphers had been faked. It was done by a very, very disturbed person. If writers were real, the man had probably killed again. Well, Saturday, September 27th, was warm and sunny. Like the beginning of a dragnet. Perfect day for Cecilia Ann Shepard, 22, and Brian Hartnell, 20, to have a picnic. They had dated during college and moved on to become friends. Lake Berryessa Park, about 20 miles north of Napa, California, offered a picturesque scene for their evening outing as they spread out their blankets and food at a spot near the water. About 6.30 that afternoon, or evening rather, a car pulled up behind Brian Hartnell's white VW, and a man got out. About six feet tall, wore dark gloves, and over his head a dark blue hood with a large slits for his eyes and mouth. There was a peculiar image painted on the, the hood, a cross-circle hand-painted in white. He waved a pistol at the young couple and announced he'd escaped from a prison in Montana after killing a guard. He only wanted their money and keys so he could flee to Mexico. Yeah, the couple agreed, but the man insisted on tying him up to prevent him from alerting others when he left. He used a plastic clothesline to bind their hands behind their backs and then between their legs. Then he said he had, well, you know, he really did have to stab him. Well, Brian said, stab me first. I'm chicken. I can't stand to see her. Uh, stabbed. So the masked man said, I'll do that. And once Brian passed out from a dozen knife wounds into his back, the attacker sliced Carol Ann as though he'd, he were frenzied. 
first in the back and then flipping her over to stab her on her breast and stomach and groin. The wounds in the front created an outline like the one painted on his hood. Crosshairs of a gun sight. Then he left a message scrawled onto the door of Brian's car with little words and dates and time. Each related to his attacks on David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen and Darlene Farron and Michael Mangal. Vallejo, 12 7469, September 27, 1969, at 6.30 by knife. Well, clearly, this killer wanted credit. Hour after the attack, he used a payphone outside of a car wash in Napa to call the police and report to his own crime. He said, I'm going to report a murder. No, actually, a double murder. You know, two miles north of Park Headquarters, they run a white Volkswagen Carmen Ghia, and I'm the one that did it. You know, despite their wounds, Brian and Cecilia managed to untie each other. Brian attempted to find help, but he lost too much blood to get far. Fisherman heard Cecilia and Brian's screams and alerted the Park Rangers. Cecilia later died of her wounds, but Brian actually survived the attack. Two weeks later, the man killed again. Killed a cab driver named... Paul Stein in San Francisco. Police wouldn't have suspected the serial killer slaughtering young couples was also behind the killing of the lone 29-year-old man, but the Zodiac killer himself. They sure they knew exactly who the culprit was. He torn a piece of bloody shirt from Stein's lifeless body and two days after the slaying mailed it to the San Francisco Chronicle. Well, by now, the killer's up behind a scattering of clues. Like, um, Barry, yes, sir. the police found a size 11 footprint with an unusual sole pattern. They identified that brand as having been sold at Sears, and they pulled fingerprints from the payphone in Napa and Stein's taxi cab. Unfortunately, their biggest break also led to their biggest blunder. Three people witnessed Stein's murder and called police, providing a description of the killer, white male, 25 to 30, 5 foot 9, tall with a stocky bill. Hair was styled in a crew cut. Wore heavy rim glasses. Now, somehow that information got miscommunicated, I guess is a polite way to say it, and officers were told to be on the lookout for a black man. So, when two police spotted a white man matching the description walking away from the scene, they didn't stop him. Two officers later worked with a sketch artist to create a drawing of the man they'd seen. That sketch prompted tips to pull in from the public, but of course, none led to an arrest. And for his part, the Zodiac Killer kept taunting investigators in his letters, boasting to police they'd never catch him because he was too smart for him. He also threatened school children, promising to shoot out the tire of a school bus and pick off the kiddies as they came bouncing out. This terrifying threat caused officers to uh, throughout the area to guard school buses. Volunteer teachers and parents rode inside the vehicles with the kids. Well, at the height of the Zodiac panic, a man identifying himself as the killer called into a TV show hosted by Jim Dunbar of KGO-TV in the San Francisco Bay Area. Caller insisted he speak on the air with famed attorney Melvin Belli. Belli was best known for representing Jack Ruby, the man who killed Lee Harvey Oswald, the alleged assassin of the U.S. President, John Kennedy. Over the course of two hours and one a dozen phone calls, the killer said he was sick and suffered from headaches and killing alleviated the pain. 
Belli tried to coach him into surrendering to police, and at times he seemed receptive, and finally he said, uh, I don't want to give myself up. I want to kill those kids. You know, the entire exchange was televised, and police were able to confirm whether the caller was the killer or a hoaxer. Stein's the last of the seven confirmed Zodiac victims, five fatalities and two severely injured, but it's suspected there were a number of others. Paul Avery, a veteran crime reporter on the Chronicle, wrote in 1970 the same killer may have been at work in 1966 as well. Avery reported the notes similar to the ones from the Zodiac were sent to the Riverside Post Enterprise and to police after the 1966 killing of 18-year-old Sherry Jo Bates. She had been lured from her stalled car to a deserted parking lot where she was stabbed to death. Notes sent afterwards said Bates had to die. There will be more. According to Avery, two of the notes were signed with a Z. Well, Paul Avery also connected the Zodiac Killer to kidnapping of a 23-year-old mother, Kathleen Johns, who was driving with a one-year-old daughter from San Bernardino to the San Francisco area where when another car flashed its lights at her, prompting her to pull over. man approached and warned her one of her car wheels was wobbling and fixed it for her. After that, Kathleen started driving again only to have the same tire completely come off the car. The man who had helped her stopped again and offered to take her to a gas station. She agreed, but had a sinking feeling after he passed one gas station after another. When she finally asked him what he was doing, he said, well, he planned to kill her. Well, she managed to jump out of the car with her daughter and hide in a ditch. When she finally reached the police station to report the accident, she spotted a reward poster featuring a picture of the Zodiac, and she screamed, my God, that's him. Well, another suspect, suspected but unconfirmed Zodiac case, centers on the 25-year-old Donna Lass, who disappeared from South Lake Tahoe in September 1970. In fact, her body was never found. Six months later, Avery got a postcard he believed was from the Zodiac. The message consisted of cut-and-pasted newspaper clippings and seemed to say that Lass's body would be found around in the snow. That note was signed with the cross and circle symbol of the Zodiac's past letters. Now, some folks thought it was a copycat, especially because it came on the heels of another confirmed and well-publicized Zodiac communique sent to Avery at the Chronicle. Newspapers across the country ran stories about Avery getting a ghoulish Halloween card in late October 1970. Written neatly in white ink was the message, Peekaboo, you're doomed. It was signed from your secret pal. Card was adorned with images of skeletons and a handwritten reference to paradise and slaves and the phrase by fire, by gun, and by rope. Card was later authenticated by a handwriting expert who had studied the Zodiac Killer's earlier messages. Well, police considered it a threat to on Avery's life, but he declined protection. He said, I'm not scared. I needled him for some of my stories. Maybe that's why he wrote to me. He did say, I do think I'll be a little more careful in the future. The last of his 18 confirmed letters, several supposed Zodiac letters, have been deemed to be fakes since then. Killer praised the classic 1974 horror movie The Exorcist as the best satirical comedy he'd ever seen. Claimed that his body count had reached 37. 
It was after this revelation that the Zodiac seemingly disappeared. Well, the abrupt killing, uh, end to the Zodiac's killing spree only seemed to fuel his mystique. Theories about his true identity are never ending. Many have stepped forward and claimed to have solved the mystery. Robert Graysmith, a cartoonist working at the Chronicle when the Zodiac Killer announced himself, became obsessed with the case, wrote two best-selling books that suggested the killer was Arthur Lee Allen. Allen, who died in 1992, had less an honorable discharge from the Navy in 1958 and fired from a teaching job for molesting a student in 1968. He wore a Zodiac brand watch, the logo which was similar to the crosshair signature that the killer used. Is reported to the police by a former friend, Don Chaney, who broke off with Alan when Alan's supposedly floating ideas for novelty plan to write started talking about calling himself Zodiac and killing people. One of Alan's ideas involved shooting the tires off a school bus and killing the kids inside, a threat that the Zodiac killer would subsequently make. In 74, same year that the final Zodiac letter was sent, Alan was arrested for molesting a 12-year-old boy. He pleaded guilty to the charge and served a two-year prison sentence. 1991 is identified in the photo lineup by uh, Michael McGowan, one of the Zodiac Killer's survivors, but despite a wealth of circumstantial evidence, DNA, fingerprint, and handwriting test, Allen was cleared. He died in 1992 at home, Vallejo, California, of a heart attack. Two thousand seven when Zodiac, a film adaptation of Gray Smith's book, which was directed by David Fincher, hit cinemas and interest was renewed in the case. Detective George Bywat said he was ninety five percent sure Allen was the killer. What really bothered him about the case is that they were ready to charge Allen, but he died before they could do that. And in twenty fourteen, Gary Stewart wrote a book called The Most Dangerous Animal of All, claiming his biological father was the elusive Zodiac Killer. Stuart had been abandoned in a stairwell soon after being born. As an adult, he learned that his father was Earl Van Best Jr., a book salesman whom Stuart said had disturbing fixations and rage issues. Stuart pointed to his father's appearance, a dead ringer for the police sketch circulated in 1969, said that he found his father's initials, E.V., Best, and Junior in a Zodiac cipher sent to the San Francisco Examiner. San Francisco police commented that they were investigating the claim. An expert matched the handwriting in the Zodiac killer's letter to Earl Van Best's signature on his marriage certificate. Hundreds of names have, in fact, been linked to the case at one time or another, but a few individuals, unfortunately now all are dead, weren't particular attention. One's Lewis Myers. Before his death in 2002, a friend said he had confessed to being the Zodiac Killer. He supposedly targeted couples after he broke up with his girlfriend. Myers had connections with several of the victims, attending the same schools as David Faraday and Betty Lou Jensen, and working in the same restaurant as Darlene Farron. Furthermore, no Zodiac letters were received for a period between 71 and 73, which was when Myers was stationed overseas with the military. Another suspect was named Lawrence Kane. He'd allegedly pestered uh, during Farrell at work. Had a history of sex offenses, which ceased in 1969. 
fit the description of the killer and can also be linked to the crime because of an anagram of his surname and that could be found in the Zodiac Killer's cipher. 1991, the Vallejo Police Department reopened the case and discovered that Kane's whereabouts uh, unknown previously when uh, found matched places victims lived or the murder scenes. Traumatic brain injury in a car crash in 1962 had affected uh, Kane's speech and gait, and it's conceivable the effects of his uh, injury gradually turned Kane into a murderer. He died in 2010, the age of 86 in Nevada. Another suspect, Ross Sullivan, had been hospitalized for bipolar disorder and schizophrenia several times. He habitually wore boots whose soles were similar to footprints found at the Lake Berryessa murder scene and bore resemblance to the 1969 warning poster sketch of the killer. He had short hair and glasses. It's unknown whether Sullivan was ever interviewed by the police. Another suspect with connections to the Lake Berryessa stabbings was Donald Lee Bujock, a felon who was released from Montana prison in 68 after serving 11 years for killing a sheriff's deputy. Sayu Shepard and Brian Hartnell's attacker told him he had just escaped from a Colorado prison. The police are still hoping to finally solve this case with modern technology. 2018, Vallejo detectives sent two envelopes uh, containing Zodiac letters to a lab and hoped that uh, saliva from the envelope flap and the stamps might contain the killer's DNA. Detective Terry Poiser said if the lab could create a genetic profile based on the DNA, Investigators might be able to track down the killer through genealogy websites. According to Poison, it really comes down to DNA. Without it, you got nothing. Well, our next case certainly demonstrates the uh, the truth behind the phrase "stranger danger." Parents living in Oakland County, Michigan, often told their children to stay away from strangers. You know, the case of the so-called Oakland County child killer, named after the Michigan County in which four terrifying kidnappings and murders occurred, really panicked parents throughout the Midwest, and the details were baffling. Two male victims bore signs of sexual assault, and the two females didn't. Three were suffocated or strangled, and one died from a gunshot blast to the head. And all appeared to have been bathed at some point and were discovered neatly dressed. Twelve-year-old Mark Stebbins and his older brother Mike regularly hung out together at an American Legion Hall at uh, Nine Mile in Woodward, about a mile from their home in Ferndale, Michigan. The veterans' organization was a safe place for the boys to spend time and on a snowy Sunday in February 1976, they walked to the hall to play pool. After a while, Mark, described as a good student who liked to spend time alone, said he wanted to walk home and watch TV. And it was a path he had taken countless times before, both with his brother and by himself. But on this particular day, Mark didn't arrive home. And eventually his mother, Ruth, called police in a panic. Now, while Mark Stebbins' disappearance worried those who knew him, it wasn't the type of case would normally receive widespread media attention. And usually, if, if the report's made within the first 48 hours, the police tend to discount it. He's a runaway. He'll show up. 
Well, this changed four days later when on February 19th, an office worker in the nearby town of Southfield spotted his body lying abandoned in a parking lot. Now, Mark had rope burns on his wrist, but he wasn't bound at the time they found him and appeared he'd been strangled or suffocated at least the day before. Ferndale Police Chief Donald Geary told reporters the boy's body likely had been kept in the trunk of a car before being ditched in the parking lot. Not only had he been scrubbed clean, his fingernails had been scraped by his killer. As the police investigated, Mark's family mourned months passed and the case slipped quietly from the headlines. Then on December 26, 1976, a motorist found the body of 12-year-old Jill Robinson in Troy, Michigan. She'd left her Royal Oak home four days earlier after an argument with her mother over what to have for dinner. Now, on the surface, it was tough to determine if Jill's death was related to Mark's. little girl had died in a completely different manner. She received a shotgun blast to the head rather than asphyxiation. It's possible. They had tried to strangle her, learn when they couldn't, they shot her. But a few striking similarities led the police to believe there had to be a connection. Like Mark, Jill was a loner. And it appears she'd been kidnapped in hell for days before being killed. And as with Mark, she'd been given food and water to drink uh, while held captive. And her body, like Mark's, was dumped on a day that it snowed, helping to obscure much-needed evidence. Well, after this, the killer's pace quickened. Next victim disappeared just a week later. January 2nd, 1977, after leaving a party shop just four blocks from her home in Berkeley, Michigan, 10-year-old Christine Mihalik bought a magazine and was walking along a busy thoroughfare in broad daylight when she vanished. And because Jill's body had been found so recently, Christine's disappearance was treated with far more urgency. Police helicopters swept the area and officers canvassed the neighborhood looking for witnesses and clues, but didn't find anything. A week after Christine vanished, police naturally assumed the worst. And those fears were realized when snow fell January 22, 1977, 19 days after Christine's disappearance. Bell carrier Jerry Wozni discovered Christine's body in a ditch along a dead-end road in Franklin, Michigan. That's another town in Oakland County. He said, I saw a hand. It scared the hell out of me, he said. He said it appeared the snow had been tossed on top of the body to make her difficult to spot. Headlines the next day in the paper said slayings terrorize county. Troy News offered a reward of $10,000 to catch this killer. Less than two months later, the terror reached the King family. March 16, 1977, 11-year-old Tim asked his sister Kathy for 30 cents so he could buy candy from a drugstore three blocks from home. Left his home in Birmingham, Michigan about 8.15 in the evening. Skateboarded to the Hunter Maple Pharmacy. Sharp assistant uh, Amy Walter saw him leave with his candy about 8.30 through a rear door that led to a darkened parking lot. And Tim, who his parents had repeatedly warned not to talk to strangers, never returned home. A blue AMC gremlin uh, had been seen parked in the lot where he was last seen. 
2013, parts of a similar car were found buried in a field in Grand Block, Michigan. Well, a week, week later, Tim King's body was found. Like the other victims, he'd been kept alive much of the time he'd been missing. Officials believe he was suffocated within six hours of being found. And while Tim was missing, his mother had written a letter to the Detroit News pleading for him to come home for some Kentucky Fried Chicken. That was his favorite meal, don't you know? Autopsy of the body revealed the food he had eaten just before he was killed. Fried chicken. His body's found in a ditch along a well-traveled dirt road in Livonia, Michigan, with a skateboard placed next to him. Like all the other victims, his body had been carefully cleaned, and aside from the samples of white dog hair, location marked a change in pattern as Livonia fell in Wayne County. Rather than... Neighboring Oakland, police and sheriff's deputies from both jurisdictions are dedicated to the case. Enough witnesses finally came forward to police to create a sketch of a suspect. Face that emerged from all the the tips belonged to a white man with dark hair, a prominent nose, and thick lips. Bushy mutton chop whiskers ran down his cheeks. An accompanying psychological profile, told the community we're looking for somebody between 25 and 35, well-educated, worked a white-collar job with enough flexibility to give him the freedom to carry out his crimes. According to Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin, we believe he appears sane 99% of the time. He also suggested perhaps the killer was seeing a psychiatrist. Tobin urged anybody in the medical or legal professions to come forward with any information. Police officers are beginning to suspect the killer is being protected by somebody close to him. Maybe a relative or a friend. Birmingham Police Chief Jerry Tobin also commented no individual would have kept four children for varying lengths of time without somebody knowing. Well, it's probably because of that suspicion the family members of the victims were stonewalled by um, investigators. Frustrated that Tim's parents had been especially cooperative and humoring investigators' hunches early on. Texas believed somebody was holding Tim hostage would react badly to his parents' emotional pleas, so the couple agreed to conceal their grief and keep their tone positive during news conferences. Kings felt they'd received little cooperation from the authorities in return. Special task force decided the case was disbanded in December '78, and subsequent uh, the Kings subsequently sued the county prosecutor's office, hoping to force it to release more evidence from the case. 2012, the office did release 6,000 pages of case documents. However, the King's request that officials be forced to release more information was denied by the Michigan Supreme, uh, Supreme Court in 2017. Over the years, police have received over 18,000 clues and leads from the public. Two other abductions had been linked to the Oakland child killer case. Cynthia Cadieu, 16, battered to death, and Jane Allen, 14, killed by carbon monoxide poisoning. 2012, an unidentified investigator known as Bob claimed that there were between 11 and 16 victims. The killings were connected to satanic rituals. These claims were eventually dismissed due to lack of evidence. Little official information has meant that the rumors have abounded over the identity of the Oakland County child killer. Few names were publicly tied to the case. Among the first was David Norberg. An auto worker drove a car that looked similar to the one described near Tim's abduction site. He'd been suspected of killing two girls in the late 70s, but he wasn't convicted. 
After he died in a car crash in 1981, his his wife found a small silver cross inscribed with the name Christine. She remembered the girl who had been the Oakland County killer's uh, third victim and showed the cross to Christine's aunt, who said it was identical to one Christine had worn at the Romeo uh, Peach Festival shortly before her death. Police exhumed Norberg's body in 1999 to see if his DNA matched evidence from the case. But unfortunately, the results didn't tie him to the murders. Some investigators say that there's no way that Norberg, a heavy drinker, had been able to lure stranger danger concerts children into his car, and he'd largely been dismissed as a suspect. A convicted pedophile named Christopher Bunch was on the short list for the King family and Erica McAvoy, Christine's half-sister. Son of a wealthy auto executive, Bush lived in the area at the time. He was questioned soon after Tim's death and admitted to investigators he was a pedophile. He also drove a car that looked similar to the one spotted at one of the abductions. Investigators wanted to keep him in jail, but L. Brooks Patterson, the head of the prosecutor's office during the killings, released him as part of a plea deal. November 1978, just a few months later, Bush died by suicide in his home. Drawing of a screaming boy that that resembled Mark Stedman's was reportedly found pinned to the wall. Another suspect was James Gunnels, a 51-year-old man connected to Christine's murder through DNA evidence. 2012 investigators revealed that a strand of her hair, a strand of hair found on Christine was a mitochondrial match for Gunnels, meaning it could have come from him or somebody on his mother's side of the family. Now Gunnels was no more than 16 at the time the crimes were committed, and he'd been raped by Bush. 2012, Gunnels went with the King family and insisted he didn't know anything about the crimes. 2012, another tenuous DNA test produced a suspect named Arch Sloan, who was serving a life sentence for the rape of a 10-year-old boy in 1983. Hair found in his 1966 Pontiac Bonneville matched hair found on both Mark and Tim's crime scenes. Although the hair wasn't Sloan's, investigators believed it belonged to an acquaintance of his. DNA tests in 2013 also quashed allegations that the notorious serial killer John Wayne Gacy was the murderer. And while the King and Mihalich families zeroed in on Bush as a suspect, March Stebbins' family filed a wrongful death lawsuit in 2017 against Theodore Lamborghini. A man who lacked Sloan was in prison for life on assault convictions. David Binkley, a lawyer representing the Stebbins family, said his clients didn't think Lamborghini uh, acted alone and hoped the suit would uh, help to un- uncover more information. Pointed to Lamborghini's refusal to take a polygraph test despite being offered a massively reduced sentence if he answered questions about the Oakland County child killings. According to Binkley, wouldn't you deny being the Oakland County child killer? Despite the family's suspicions, the suit was dismissed in 2008. But the presiding judge left room for it to be refiled and more evidence should come to light. Tim's father, Barry King, has replayed time and again how he had talked to his son about the, after the comedian learned of Christine's death. He said, all my kids remember me telling Tim, if anybody tries to pick you up, drop everything and run and scream. Part of the tragedy to him is that once Tim got in the car, he knew what would happen. And that's the worst part of it all. 2013, the King family produced a documentary titled Decades of Deceit, detailing what they perceived as the bungled investigation of their son's murder. 
Well, as long as the mystery of the Oakland County child killer remains unsolved, the Kings and the other victims' families are, remain haunted by the events of over 40 years ago. Still searching for answers that always seem to be just out of reach. And the problem is, when law enforcement screws up, they don't admit it. They swear you couldn't get them to admit they made a mistake at gunpoint. Well, let's talk about the Dorothy Jane Scott murder. She had been receiving crank phone calls for months before she vanished. And then a mysterious man began calling her parents, boasting he'd kidnapped her. Telephone was ringing. Dorothy Jane Scott picked up the receiver with a degree of reluctance. Awareness had become habitual by this point. And the male voice said, when I get you alone, I'll cut you up into bits so nobody will ever find you. Well, at the time, Dorothy thought the voice sounded familiar, but she couldn't place it. She'd been receiving alarming phone calls from an identified man for months. It only did he threaten her with violence. He'd also seek to intimidate her by claiming that he was watching her. Sometimes he was able to state where she was and what she was doing in great detail. On one occasion, she got a call from a man telling her to take a look outside. said he'd left her a gift on her car when she was a single dead rose. Understandably, she was on high alert. And it would later turn out that she had every right to be. Before these calls began to consume her every waking moment, she lived a routine and settled life. 32-year-old single mother living in Stanton, California with her aunt and four-year-old son, Shanti. Dorothy had separated from Shanti's father, Dennis Terry of Fairgrove, Missouri. And during the week, Dorothy worked at a, as a back office secretary at the jointly owned Swingers Psych Shop and Custom John's Head Shop in Anaheim with her, while her parents looked after Shanti. After she finished work, she'd pick her son up, drive back home, and cook dinner. And she and her son would watch TV or read a book together before bedtime. And Dorothy was a devout Christian, very seldom dated. She preferred to spend a quiet night with her son. Lived a very predictable life, but it was a life she had carved out for herself and her son. Known to be hardworking and compassionate woman who cared deeply about her family. Well, when it became clear that these calls weren't going to stop, she decided to take up karate lessons. Consider purchasing a gun decided against it, fearing her son might find it and harm himself. But she was determined to take steps to protect herself and her son, should her volatile stalker prove generally dangerous. May 28, 1980, she dropped her son off with her parents and drove to work for an employee meeting. During the meeting, a colleague of hers, uh, Con uh, Conrad Bostron, mentioned he'd been feeling ill and showed Dorothy an inflamed wound on his arm. Dorothy urged Conrad to go to the UCI Medical Center to get it checked out and offered to take him there in her car. Another co uh, colleague, Pam Head, accompanied the two. En route to the UCI Medical Center, Dorothy stopped at her parents' home to check on her son and inform him she might be getting home late. She changed her black scarf to a red one while she made that stop. Well, Conrad was examined by the medical staff and found his feelings of nausea and wound on his arm had been caused by the bite of a spider. Dorothy and Pam sat in the waiting room watching TV and reading magazines while Conrad got treatment for the bite. 
By 11 p.m., Conrad was discharged and they were ready to leave the hospital. Doctor said she'd get the car from the parking lot and meet him out front after they'd had Conrad's prescription filled. Well, Conrad and Pam briefly waited at the front of the building for their friend. When she didn't show up, they walked over to the parking lot. Out of nowhere, they saw uh, Dorothy's white 73 Toyota station wagon speed out of the parking lot and make a fast right turn around the corner, racing away from them. They couldn't see who was behind the wheel. They waved their hands. No way she could have missed them. They started running trying to catch up with the car, but it disappeared. Waited two hours for Dorothy to come back. No sign of her. They notified the UCI police, who, as normal, didn't seem alarmed. When Dorothy didn't come home that night to collect her son, her father, Jacob, and her mother, Vera, called the police to report her missing. During the hours of the next morning after her disappearance, Dorothy's burned-out car was discovered in an alley in Santa Ana. Police declared to have been delivery put on, set on fire, probably to destroy evidence. No sign of Dorothy anywhere. Days later, there was a telephone call to Jacob and Vera's home phone. The caller said, are you related to Dorothy Scott? And the mother said, yes. And he said, well, I've got her, and then he hung up. Next week, determined not to keep quiet about his daughter's disappearance any longer, Jacob called the Register newspaper, now called the Orange County Register in Santa Ana. The paper ran a story on Dorothy's disappearance. Same morning the story ran, the Register's managing editor, Pat Riley, Got an, an, an ominous phone call. Voice said she was my love. I caught her cheating with another man. She'd have died having somebody else, so I killed her. Ruby said the man revealed details about Dorothy's disappearance that uh, were not public knowledge. He knew that Dorothy was at the UCI Medical Center with a friend who'd been bitten by a spider. And he knew she was wearing a red scarf and claimed that she called him from the medical center. Well... The um, August 6, 1984, John and Vera's worst films are confirmed when a subcontractor from Pacific Bell came across human remains while uh, laying cable under Santa Ana Canyon Road. He discovered a human skull, pelvis, arm, and two thigh bones. Alongside the human remains was a woman's wristwatch and a turquoise ring. The watch stopped at 12.30 a.m. on May 29th, a little over an hour after she disappeared. Remains are transported to Orange County Coroner's Office, and where they're identified as those of Dorothy Jane Scott. Well, after the um, the news of the discovery circulated throughout the city, Jacob and Vera got one last phone call. Voice asked, "Is Dorothy home?" And that was the final call the killer ever placed to Dorothy's parents. Not only did they get away with murder, he inflicted a massive amount of psychological torture on both Dorothy and her parents. Despite numerous hypothetical explanations of the case, no suspects were ever named, and Dorothy Sampson, a Scott's uh, killer, still remains unidentified. Who knows how many other folks this wacko has killed. Well, that's the end of today's show. We'll be back tomorrow and talk about other strange topics. Until then, this is Ken Hudnall for the Ken Hudnall Show, saying have a truly... Great evening.